but I want to make it really simple. And it's only really simple because I gave a, I did a lot of thinking about what we achieve in shock resuscitation when I was studying fellowship. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is the Vet Vault. We'll be back in a second to talk more about fluid therapy in patients experiencing shock. But we want to tell you a bit more about our clinical episodes. Over the next few weeks, we'll be launching some brand new podcasts that will be the home of our clinical podcast episodes. At the Vet Vault, we're all about helping you create a happy career in veterinary science. And a part of that is achieving and staying up to date with your clinical knowledge. But if you've listened to any of our content, you will know that we talk a lot about performance and having balanced and fulfilled lives in all aspects of your life, which leaves us with the conundrum of time. How do we commit time to personal fulfillment while still making time to learn and grow in our clinical knowledge? Well, we have a plan for that. We're working with some of the best specialists out there to create short, useful, and highly practical clinical content that you can consume on the go. Instead of listening to bad commercial radio while you're driving or scrolling through Gerardo's Instagram feed in those in-between moments in life, in the car or waiting in line somewhere or while doing the dishes, you can join us while we pick the brains of some of the smartest clinicians we know. We'll be giving you more details about where to find this over the next few weeks, but for now, let's get back to Dr. Rob and part one on how to approach fluid therapy in the shock patient. Well, let's actually go back to last week very briefly about about shock because we were talking about you know the, the traditional classifications of shock being um, any form of uh, globally inadequate cellular energy production so that cells uh, can't maintain their normal uh, their normal functions and you know generally the patient dies because of uh, cardiac failure or neurological failure because the heart and brain are those organs that need to work on a minute to minute basis now we we kind of separated our shock into the most common forms of shock being circulatory shock where our oxygen delivery is reduced because effectively our cardiac output is reduced. And we we talked about that. And and that's what we're going to focus on today because when we talk about shock resuscitation, we're talking exactly what you mentioned, uh, Hubert, which is fluid uh, choice, fluid rate, fluid assessment, and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, just to be clear, we're talking about resuscitation of circulatory shock and we've also got to exclude cardiogenic shock mm-hmm. you know because of course this is not a, a cardiogenic shock patients in cardiogenic shock are usually in a state of volume overload and so if you nail them with fluids we're going to get things things going to go from bad to worse and so you know re- the very quick recap of shock is you see this patient hit your crash bench and they've got those six cardinal signs being uh, tachycardia weak femoral pulses, pale mucous membranes, slow capillary refill time, dull mentation, cold extremities, right? So, you know, any two, three, four, five, or if they're really bad, six of those cardinal signs of shock. And the first thing you need to exclude while you're giving flow by oxygen and and placing an IV catheter because, you know, intravenous access and uh, oxygen supplementation would be mandatory for any of this sort of patients. You want to quickly exclude that they're in cardiogenic shock before we start hammering them with fluids. Okay, so look for you know a heart a, a, a heart murmur. Uh, look for 
really um, irregularly irregular pulses that we might see with with tachyarrhythmias with uh, atrial fibrillation and and we're really looking for large breed dogs in dilated cardiomyopathy or with a pericardial effusion you know because they're, they're the two most common forms of cardiogenic shock that that present you know your, your standard small breed dog uh, comes in with um, when they when they're in cardiac failure they come in with uh, volume overload and pulmonary edema so it's a different presentation they might have pale gums but you're putting them on the crash bench because they're they're in respiratory difficulty you've got really crackly lungs yeah okay so so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do our best to exclude cardiogenic shock and a Gerardo would do a bit more you know if you've got someone uh, excellent with the um, with the fast scan, uh, you can probably have a look at that patient's contractility and, and have a quick scan for pericardial effusion. Mm -hmm. but, but for today, let's deal with patients that have signs of hypovolemia that are not in cardiogenic shock. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. And that, and, and that's where we start today is, and I, I would call it advanced uh, fluid resuscitation. Um, just the advanced because we're vets and so we don't want to do um, you know introductory fluid resuscitation but but I want to make it really simple and it, it's only really simple because I gave a I did a lot of thinking about what we achieve in shock resuscitation when I was studying fellowship and now we're talking about a patient with poor cardiac output and uh, an inadequate volume and what I want people to, to be able to do is, is basically conceptualize this patient and think about where that actual volume deficit is before we start giving them some fluids. Now, uh, I have a sponge and a piece of pipe that I stole from my mum's garden uh, here as a prop. But just before we move on to this prop, what I want people to do is picture the fluid compartments of the body. If we've got our total body fluids and we know they're kind of about 60% body weight, but we have two thirds of this is intracellular fluid, right? So the ICF is not going to be involved in this shock state. You know, in the shock state, what we're, what we're seeing when we have hypovolemia is low blood volume, right? So we've got hypovolemic shock. It may be hemorrhagic shock if the patient's bleeding out. It may be distributive shock that we see with, with sepsis, but our fluid deficit is in this extracellular fluid, which is about uh, one third of the um, total fluids. And when we're looking at this fluid, think about how what we've got is about 80% is uh, interstitial fluid, right? And the second uh, compartment of the ECF fluid is the plasma and that's around 20%. Mm -hmm. And what I want people to think about just before we go any further is where our crystalloid and our colloid fluids go, you know, and effectively what happens is that colloids stay, colloids and colloids might be synthetic colloids, plasma or blood. They're going to stay in this plasma volume. Whereas our uh, crystalloid fluids which are the most commonly the fluids we use on the crash bench, don't think of them as intravenous fluids. Please think of your uh, crystalloid fluids. It's, it's probably more appropriate to think of them as um, extracellular fluids because rather than spreading from plasma, you know, we, the, the, the picture that I conceptualized as a vet student was that we gave crystalloids, right? We gave some saline and it starts off in the plasma and then it spreads to the interstitial space, 
right? And, and for that reason, we get a big spike and then the, um, then the um, fluid volume reduces. But it, it's probably more appropriate to think of these crystalloids as going straight through the um, interstitial fluid. And, and that's the reason why I've got my mum's sponge here and hose is because I want people for the purposes of this resuscitation talk to be thinking about our fluids going into the hose, which is about 20% of the volume, but very, very quickly, crystalloids are gonna go into this sponge. And the importance of this sponge is that this is the space between all of your cells and in particular organs, as this sponge gets super saturated, it does things such as reduce cellular function and reduce healing. So think about this sponge uh, around the an intestinal anastomosis. You know, think of this sponge around a, a nephron within the renal capsule. You know, for example, if I and, and and why I want you to think about this sponge really importantly is if we take that nephron and we increase this interstitial fluid pressure, we significantly reduce tubular blood flow and um, and tubular uh, urine flow, uh, which is going to affect kidney function. And and what we've found over the last or what we're seeing over about the last 10 years of research into critical care is what happens in this sponge, in this extracellular fluid, is vital to um, post-operative prognosis and how that patient recovers from uh, trauma or surgery or for whatever reason caused the shock immediately. So, you know, to, to summarise exactly what we're going to be talking about today, when your sponge is dry as hell and your uh, patient's hypovolemic, give crystalloids. Know that you'll resuscitate the patient's volume but you'll also fill the sponge. You'll also restore the interstitial fluid. On the other hand, if you've got the situation where your sponge is already full and all you've got is an obliterated uh, intravascular space, say you're hemorrhaging and this, you know, this patient's not dehydrated at all, there's no um, benefit to filling up this sponge with extra fluid. What you're likely to do there is impair organ function and increase the likelihood of consequences that are not necessarily good for your patient. So think about resuscitating patients in three different classes. And to make it simple, I say our, most of our inadequate volume patients are either dry, bleeding, or septic. Okay. Right. And although there's like heaps of different types of shock, right? But once we've established that it's not cardiogenic shock and we think we've got to give them some volume because they've got weak pulses, pale gums, tachycardia, uh, slow refill time, and those cardinal signs of shock. Let's then ask one more question. Is this patient dry, bleeding, or septic? And that'll tailor our fluid boluses and our approach to resuscitation. And so, you know, if, if, if that's all right, Hubert. That's excellent. That, that's a, just that little section there is so vital, and it is a paradigm shift for recently for myself and I think for lots of vets I, I I went through vet school through uni and the idea was that other than drowning a cat fluids are pretty harmless and you can't really overdo them so just whack it in so animals in shock yeah just whack it in no dramas um, and the same thing with I mean, you get a, an animal that comes in in shock and I see it happen we effectively manage that with fluids and then it just keeps going and there's not critical assessment of okay now we've stabilized it but the fluids are still rushing in um, so the things that you're saying about causing decrease in organ function through overdoing it, I think is also, it's a massive lesson that, that, that I should take note of and everybody should really take note of, but I'd love, I love that approach. Let's, let's roll with that. 
Okay, because we're seeing this more and more, like the humans are much more further down the line of clinical research than us. So they can monitor smaller differences in, you know, in prognosis as regards hospitalization, duration, cost and outcome. And, you know, if we take bleeding patients, for example, almost every single study shows that low volume resuscitation. So trying to fill the pipe, not the sponge, is by far the best. But the problem for you at the crash bench, and I want to like kind of reassure everyone that giving a bit too much fluids is, is not necessarily the worst. The problem at the crash bench is if you, if you misjudge that patient that's bleeding and you give too much fluids, then you know, you've filled the sponge and you might get some consequences. But if you don't give enough fluids, your patient's dead and you have a, a much worse consequence. So, you know, I guess what I'd like to do as a result of this talk is guide your thinking down the way of resuscitation. Don't give more, as, as you said, Hugh, don't give more fluids for the sake of, the sake of it. Stop that bolus as soon as that patient is showing improved clinical endpoints, but, um, but don't be, don't be petrified of these, these fluids. They, they're absolutely life-saving in a lot of cases. So okay. um, yeah, okay, so let's move on. Okay. So we start with the dry, right? Um, and if I'm thinking of a dry patient and I guess I'd ask you, you know, we, we've seen this patient, they've got low volume. So again, uh, to say tachycardia, uh, weak femoral pulses and, um, a dull demeanor, you know, and, and we're picturing, um, that this is about a 35 kilogram Labrador, uh, and he's been vomiting for two days and, and, you know, you, I, I, look, I don't want to ask you to suck eggs, but just for the sake of me talking all the time, you know, what are you, you know, what other signs might we see in this patient that suggests that he's got a dry interstitial space as well as low volume? You know, what, what are you, what are you looking at? This is why we get specialists on the show, Rob, so that I don't have to. <laughs> so uh, you're going to have dry, dry membranes. For yep. a start, the tacky, tacky dry membranes. Uh, are we going to be guided by the clinical signs? The fact that it yeah. is a, a vomiting dog and not a post trauma dog or, or not a, it's not an acute onset. So even an internal bleeding dog, it's it was going to be fine this morning and suddenly, suddenly sicker. That'll probably yeah. be the main thing that makes me think about it is, is what it presents as with what the history is. Yeah. And he's like, you know, he comes in, he's a Labrador comes in for two days vomiting. He's yeah. unlikely to have been having a bleed. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. They, they, those really dry gums. Uh, if I want to add in some, um, and, and everyone picture the last Labrador that you removed a rock out of their intestines, right? Yeah. They've often got, they're, they're dull as anything. They often got quite sunken eyes. Um, skin tinting. Skin, skin tent. Um, so skin tent, sunken eyes, dry tear films, dry gums, you know. Um, you do a PCVTP, is the protein elevated or? or it's going to be elevated. Elevated, yeah. So, so there's less... There's, you know, and that, that that's the simplest, you know, that that's testing that that watery within the, the intravascular volume. So that's going to be, um, so you're going to have this high protein because of loss of loss of fluid there. And if you're to weigh this patient, you know, it, uh, unfortunately, we never have the luxury of knowing how much they weighed two days ago. But if he's 10% dehydrated, he's he's probably, you know, he's, he's 10% lighter than he, he should be. Mm -hmm. And by the time we've got, significant loss of extracellular fluid from vomiting enough to cause shock. We've probably lost uh, at least 10% of body weight 
to 10 to 15% of body weight. And so I, I start with this guy because he's the easiest to resuscitate, right? He's uh, a, a lot of these patients have a particular electrolyte um, abnormality as well, such as a, a, like a metabolic alkalosis because of loss of chloride in the, in the vomit. But I, you know, a lot of, a lot of vets don't have the um, luxury of having a, um, a blood gas machine right beside them. So in, in many cases, you know, you, you're seeing this picture, you think he's got a foreign body or some sort of GI losses, a, a parvoviral enteritis puppy might be similar or, um, or a patient with severe uh, gastro. Uh, HG comes a little bit different because we, we often lose a degree of plasma volume there. Mm-hmm. But, but this patient, you know, if you want to think about him, you know, he's dry. So sponge is empty. And because we've also seen these signs of hypovolemia, we know that the pipe is empty as well. And so it makes sense to give this guy some volume that's going to fill both spaces. So, so let's imagine he's a 40 kilo Labrador and he's 10% dehydrated. There's probably about a four liter volume deficit there. So it was, you know, we kind of got a lot to play with here. That's four bags of Hartman's that we can, we can give this guy before we're in trouble. Um, But what we're still not going to, you know, we're not going to hammer those four bags of Hartman's in straight away. What we're going to do is initially, resuscitate from this hypovolemic state and and what what we're anticipating is let's choose a fluid that spreads throughout so let's choose uh, a, an intravenous replacement crystalloid three choices in australia is hartman's uh, uh, 0.9 sodium chloride and um, plasmalite 148 there are specific times where each of those fluids might be useful but for today you're going to save the life by giving one of those fluids and Let's start with a bolus. And in this guy, you know, there's no, um, you know, we're we're not going to give him too much. So we can go 10 or often I'd go 20 mils per kilo bolus, right? Mm. And, and, and by bolus, I want to give that over probably 10 to 15 minutes. You know, he's not dying. He's just very sick and and low volume. So sorry, we should, he is dying, but he's not going to die in the next one minute. Right. So, so so let's give him that, that initial bolus, 20 mils per kilo. Uh, you may need to give it through a pressure infuser. You may put it on a high rate fluid pump, or if you have neither of those things through the burette as fast as it will, will flow. And what we're really looking for is some endpoints that suggest that this patient has, um, is no longer volume depleted. You know, we're not going to fill up his sponge till we've given him kind of four liters of fluids, but all we need to do first is expand the pipe and it's going to buy us some time to, to fix, fix the rest of the thing. So 20 mils can, per kilo. Can, can I interrupt Rob? The, yeah. So, so the reason we want to bolus that rather than just go, you know, dehydration yep. rates is if it, if we're not quick enough, if we don't bolus that, then we're just going to fill that sponge, but yep. the pipes won't fill. So we're not going to get that instant, almost instant resuscitation where you go, okay, suddenly we're pushing blood throughout the body. Yep. Is that, is that a correct way of understanding that? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to fill them both, but you're going to fill them slowly. Yeah. Right. There is still going to be a delay over from filling the pipe to where it's where where that fluid leaves the um the vascular space and 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 spreads throughout the interstitial space. Um, but because this patient is showing signs of poor oxygen delivery, you know the the um the the signs of shock, it behoves us to replace that volume quickly to restore perfusion to the heart and brain. That's our number one um, requirement. If this patient comes in and you don't think he's showing any signs of shock, 
what I do is I draw, just draw up a rehydration plan for a 10% for, for a dehydrated patient. Mm. But it's the shock signs that mean we've got to give it quickly to restore that. So 20 mil per kilo, Hugh, and then what we want to do is see some of those endpoints uh, improve. So, you know, we, we want to, it would be ideal if heart rate drops, say it was mm-hmm. 160, I'm, I'm comfortable if it's down around 120, uh, mucous membranes a little bit pinker, pulse a little bit better. But the probably the most um, telling thing that I look for when a, in a patient that I'm resuscitating for shock is changes to mentation, okay. you know. And especially this guy um, with the with the intestinal foreign body, you'll often give um, enough intravascular volume to improve that perfusion of of heart and brain. And this dog will sit up and look around and start wagging his tail again and start looking for another rock. Yeah. Um, they're not they're not not particularly bright, are they? Um, but actually, we shouldn't judge them. I eat some stupid things um, and and drink some stupid things. Okay? <laughs> but but so so this guy, I guess the the once and once we've resuscitated the patient from shock and we're no longer in that low volume state you know then it's time to replace the rest of that fluid deficit probably as as you said over about 24 hours but if i've given um 20 mils per kilo uh so about 800 mils in the resuscitation of this patient i'm going to take that off the volume that i'm going to replace over the next 24 hours all right, because because we've already given it back, and 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 this patient's fairly straightforward because we can assess his response to fluid therapy through his weight, through his clinical signs, and through his through his recovery from surgery and that sort of thing. So so I, I think the dry patient's probably the most straightforward one to resuscitate, yep. and you know who are the really the really dry patients that we see are those with intestinal obstruction, mm-hmm. uh, those with significant acute kidney injury in some cases mm-hmm. um and let's think who else is dry the addisonian patient is often very dry yeah. uh, addisonian patients a little bit more complex because they're they're often quite hyponatremic mm-hmm. and so whenever you've got the opportunity to run a um an electrolyte panel on these patients before they mm-hmm. uh start their resuscitation i think it's um, it's it's important because one one thing that you will see is it's occasionally a really hyponatremic patient and you might change your fluid choice. Mm-hmm. What about your bad pancreatitis? They're also a bit more complicated because there's there's that inflammatory component that can muddle yeah. things up a bit. They've been puking for a couple of days, but there can be more to it than just dehydrated. Well, when we get to that, that's what I leave sepsis to last. And I think of those bad pancreatitis patients as uh, they're close to septic because they're in systemic inflammatory response. And their problem is, is Hugh, when they come in, you often don't know what the sponge is doing and what the pipe is doing, because even the pipe can be, it, it might be a lack of volume or it might be that the, um, that the heart's not working properly. You know, they have a combination of cardiogenic shock, hypovolemic shock, and distributive shock all in yeah. one go. Yeah. And so, but we've, we've got a plan for them as well. Okay. okay. And um, one, one quick question. So you're monitoring on the signs and, and specifically, as you say, it's, it's almost miraculous how much better they can look just, just within minutes almost of starting fluids. Um, are you reaching for other monitoring things? Are you monitoring blood pressure at this point? Are you using lactate as a guide or are you happy just to go with those basic things? Yeah, with this patient in a in a fully set up emergency center, and I think each each time you you know when when we're talking about these sorts of uh, patients, please bring up 
different classes of of monitoring because it really means what you it really depends what you've got available i think you know every veterinarian should be able to assess this patient make a decision to give some crystalloids give some crystalloids and know the response even if they've got even if you're out visiting a cow and the farmer says here have a look at my, my dog he's sick and you can't take him anywhere and you can't do anything except look at him and feel his tummy but if we go to you know what what i would do if i saw this patient come into the emergency hospital is before i'd um while we were getting an iv catheter in and giving some flow by oxygen potentially i would run a pcv total protein and a blood gas analysis and get a um a blood pressure as well and if this patient was hypotensive i would be absolutely giving volume until we'd uh resolve the hypotension so a, a mean arterial pressure at least above 60 millimeters of mercury mm -hmm. uh, i'd also be monitoring blood lactate yep. and if he comes in with a high lactate and we um we see first of all clinical signs are most important so i'm looking for a resolution of that shock state but he looks a lot better say after our first bolus i'd repeat that blood gas and make sure that his lactate had changed corresponding with what i'd seen clinically just just to make sure you know um so i would often use blood pressure lactate uh occasionally base deficit but it's complex because it really depends on what sort of fluid the patient's losing um blood pressure lactate uh and i would often uh with a pack cell volume if it was really elevated i may repeat that as well but i don't really use that as an endpoint so effectively endpoints clinical signs blood lactate blood pressure if you've got them. That's it for this week's clinical episode. We hope you found as much value in that as we did. And if you did, don't forget to go and tell a couple of your friends about it and to go and check out the show notes at thevetfilt.com. We'll continue this talk with Rob about shock fluids for the bleeding patient as well as the septic patient when the clinical episodes launch a little bit later this month. We'll keep you up to date. In the meantime, have a great week and we'll see you next time.